I'm sure you're all familiar with the concept of a downward spiral. It's a term we use to refer to a situation that gets progressively worse. It's where bad choices lead to negative results, which lead to further bad choices and even worse results, and so the downward spiral continues. I think we most associate the concept of a downward spiral with drug use. I'm sure we've all sadly seen a a wandering homeless person who's been made destitute by drug use. But how they get that way usually doesn't happen overnight, but for most, there's a slow and steady downward spiral that, that takes them there. Starts with experimental use and then regular use, then risky use. Soon they're addicted. They've burned their relationships. They've lost their job. Maybe they've been incarcerated a few times and now they're, they're destitute. And it's very tragic. What's interesting though is there's a very similar spiritual downward spiral, one on which many Christians have tread. When you think about Christians who have fallen away from the faith, who are spiritually destitute, we likewise wonder, you know, how'd that happen? How did how'd they get that way? That didn't happen overnight. It's not like a strong believer wakes up one morning and says, you know, I think I'm no longer going to be a Christian anymore. No, instead, they've gone down a spiritual downward spiral. Maybe it starts with a crisis in life, a severe illness, death of a loved one, divorce, loss of a job. Some great affliction shakes them, but instead of drawing to the Lord in faith, they, they, they kind of pull back. They pull away from the Lord and the things of the Lord. Their church attendance drops off. Their Bible study slows to a trickle. And this results in spiritual weakness. They're like a plant that's not being watered. And that spiritual weakness in turn leads to the tolerance of sin. Whereas before, they would never think about you know, drunkenness or stealing or, or lying. But, but now in their weakness, they're compromising. And as the saying goes, sin begets more sin. And the result of this is, is guilt and shame. And that results in a further pulling away from the Lord. And so the downward spiral continues. Eventually, they stop going to church. Their Bible is fully shelved. Christian thinking is just absent from their mind. They live lives indistinguishable from the world, and eventually they just stop believing. This happens all the time, and such a spiritual downward spiral is a real phenomenon, and it's equally tragic. But there is some good news, though, namely that a spiritual downward spiral can be stopped and it can be reversed. And there is such a thing as an upward spiral. There's a way to return to God, to draw near and to grow stronger. If you've fallen, there's a way back to closeness with God and the joy that comes from a life lived rightly before him. But this upward spiral requires some effort. It's kind of like pedaling a bike uphill. If you ease up just for a short while or take your foot off the pedal, you're going to quickly coast back down. And you can quickly go from the upward spiral to the downward spiral. But again, the good news is this can be reversed as soon as you snap out of it. You know, as quickly as you repent and get back to seeking the Lord, you can grow and draw near to him. How exactly do you do this though? And and what does this upward spiral look like? We're going to find out this morning from our text in Colossians chapter 1. So I want you to take your Bibles and open them to Colossians chapter 1. We literally just started going through Colossians, but then I've been out of the pulpit for about a month from vacation to visiting missionaries. So I think a quick recap is in order. 
You know, Paul writes Colossians during his first Roman imprisonment. One day, this guy Epaphras shows up. He's an envoy from the Colossian church. And he gives Paul a mostly positive report. These new Colossian Christians are doing well. But there's some trouble on the horizon. The false teachers are, are buzzing about. They're denying the sufficiency of Christ. And Epaphras sees the challenges looming ahead. So he goes to Paul for help, for counsel, for instruction. And Paul writes this letter in response. He begins with thanksgiving. Remember, Paul did not found the Colossian church. Epaphras did. But as soon as Paul heard that there's this this new church, you didn't even start. He gives thanks for them and the fruit of the gospel. You look back at verses 3 and 4. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. He thanks God for them continually rejoicing in their salvation, which came about through, verse 5, the gospel and the word of truth. The gospel came to them through Epaphras and it bore fruit, just as it's been doing in the whole world. And those are reasons to give thanks indeed. Now, we're, we're still in the introduction of this letter, but Paul transitions from how he gives thanks for them in verses 3 through 8 to how he now prays for them, verses 9 through 12. That's our text for this morning. Paul has been actively interceding for the Colossian church ever since he heard about them. But what's he praying about? How is he so preoccupied with praying for these, these new Christians whom he's, he's never even met? We're going to find out. And I want to tell you, this, this passage is huge. You might think these verses are trivial, verses 9 through 12. We're not even to the meat of the letter. But this is just one of those cases where, you know, the appetizer is just as good as the meal. You know, we just went on an Alaska cruise. And, you know, for dinner, since all the food is included, one night I ordered no entree. I just had like three or four appetizers. Just, just kind of keep them coming. They were that good. And these verses are kind of like that. We're not to the main point of Colossians yet, but, but they're good. And on the one hand, Paul relates to how he prays for them, and that in itself is super helpful. But we find in the content of his prayer, this really potent snapshot of Christian growth. And that Paul effortlessly describes this upward spiral of growth and intimacy with God. And that's something I think we desperately need to know and do and so let's, let's learn about it. It's Colossians chapter 1. And then follow as I read verses 9 through 12. Colossians 1, 9 through 12. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now I've got to say, this passage can seem kind of muddled until you break it down. And so I want to help you with that. I just want to walk through this text so that you can get a better grasp on this upward spiral of spiritual growth that he's describing here. So let's just begin with this. Number one, the petition. The petition. He starts off verse 9 saying, for this reason. And he's going back to verse 4, 
The reason for which he was giving thanks for them, and that is their newfound faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. That's a good reason to give thanks for them. And and so now for the same reason, he's going to pray for them. They've started strong in the faith, but the race is long, so he's going to pray for them. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Even though he'd never met them, he's been committed to regularly praying for them. Not not like he's praying for the Colossians 24-7, but as often as he prays, he's praying for the Colossians. And specifically, he's interceding for them or petitioning on their behalf. He's asking something of God for them. And what's he asking for? Now, how would you pray for a new church? I imagine many of our prayers might be paltry or pragmatic. We might pray that they would no longer have to rent a high school auditorium, but they'd get their own building, or that they'd find someone great to do their music, or that they would you know, just be safe and sound. It's not wrong to pray such things, but you know, Paul's prayers went for the jugular. He's going to pray for what mattered most in their spiritual lives. But still, it's not what you might think. Look again at verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And Paul's prayer primarily is that they would be filled this is a key word for Paul, especially in Colossians. Plerao is the word in Greek, just means a, a filling, a vessel. But Paul often uses this word with the nuance that you know, what fills you controls you. Like in Ephesians 5.18, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're filled with wine, you're going to be controlled by your flesh and bad things will happen. But if you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be controlled by the Spirit. You'll bear the fruit of the Spirit. And what Paul says here in Colossians is not all that different, as we'll see. But more specifically, he prays that they would be filled or completely controlled by what? By knowledge. Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. This is epignosis, which speaks of an intensified knowledge. He wants them to be completely filled with complete knowledge. And knowledge of what? Knowledge of God's will. This pertains to the revelation of God's plans and purposes for his creation, that Paul wants them to be completely filled with the full breadth and and depth of God's will, which is found in his word. Now, it's not quite enough to be filled with knowledge, because someone so stuffed can become unbalanced, And so the knowledge of God's will must be accompanied on on the right hand and the left by wisdom and understanding, he says. And these twin terms occur often together in scripture and they pertain to making sense of God's will and then applying it to life. It's kind of like looking at a really detailed instruction manual for for putting something together, like a a remote control car. I used to build those a lot as a kid. So you look at this 40-page booklet and it can feel overwhelming. Pictures make no sense. It might as well be written in another language. But if you're going to assemble this little car, you're going to have to figure it out. You're just going to have to spend the time to, to study that manual, learn it, make sense of it. That's understanding. 
then you're going to have to apply all that learning skillfully to actually building the car, and that's wisdom. And so wisdom and understanding together, they, they help you translate knowledge from the theoretical to the practical. And so accordingly, this whole process is not natural, but spiritual. And so he calls this spiritual wisdom and understanding. This word literally just refers to things pertaining to the spirit. Whereas the NIV puts it, that you, you need the wisdom and the understanding that the spirit gives. It's God through the Holy Spirit who will help you properly digest the word and the will of God. And that's going to produce energy for spiritual growth. And so if, if you're following, this is the heart of Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And that should be a prayer for any Christian, any new believer, us included. He just wants them to be spirit-led into the full knowledge of God's will. You get that so far? He wants them to be spirit-led into the, the complete and full knowledge of God's will. That's the heart of his prayer. Now, say again, this is a big deal because this is the first step on this upward spiral. And we really need to explore further, you know, what, what is this will of God then? And how do we find it? We need to do that. But, but first, I want you to, to keep seeing why this really matters so much. Why is this his prayer? Well, let's just keep going through the text to help you see that. And then we'll circle back later and further reflect on this knowledge of the will of God and why it matters so much. So for now, let's just keep going. Number two, we find the reason from number one, the petition to number two, the reason, reason for this prayer. You know, one observation to make so far is that Paul's primary concern for these new believers is intellectual. He's not primarily praying for their feelings or emotion. He prays for their minds. He wants them to come to a full understanding of God's truth because he knows that's the fountainhead from which everything else comes. And you should know that Christianity is a thinking religion. That right thinking leads to right doing and right feeling. Today, though, most people want the opposite, and they believe spirituality comes in the opposite direction. If you want to be enlightened, you have to empty your mind. And people don't want to think and study and contemplate. They just want to feel and experience and enjoy. And Christianity is not devoid of those things, but right feeling and meaningful experience are derived from truth and from understanding. You don't find God by emptying your mind, but by filling it with his word and his will. Now, that being said, do not confuse Christianity with being only a thinking religion, because knowing without doing is unacceptable. And God's word shows how knowledge is not the end. The knowledge is a means to another end. And the end is pleasing God by living it out, by living out his will. And so we find next that Paul, he gives the reason for this prayer. Why is he praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will? Well, because he knows that's going to lead them to the next step on this upward spiral, which is right living. So once again, back to verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
so that, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. So you see the spirit given insight into the word and will of God is not an end in of itself, but the means to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, which pleases him. Walk, of course, is used metaphorically for how you live your life. And Paul's desire is for them to walk worthily. This word for worthy in classic Greek was used to describe a perfectly balanced set of scales. And it came to refer to just a balanced life. A worthy walk is is someone who does not stumble to the right or to the left. But who determines what such a perfectly balanced walk looks like? Well, God, of course, he's the one who sets the scales. He determines the standard for right living. And we are to walk in a manner worthy of him and his will. This becomes a favorite refrain for Paul, Ephesians 4.1. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Philippians 1.27, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the glory of Christ or the gospel of Christ. You know, especially since the advent of the internet, we've had a a knowledge explosion. That we know everything, or at least we can find it out pretty quick. You know, there's no more mysteries. If you want to know something, just look it up on your phone. How many cups are in a gallon? I don't know. Just Google it. How do you remove a bad splinter? YouTube it. Now, who is the 14th president? What did he do? I have no idea, but I could tell you in probably 10 seconds. You know, we're just inundated with knowledge. But for all our knowledge, it sure hasn't led to better living. At least not righteous living. It's not led to people walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. But you see, the knowledge of God's word and will are meant to be different. That such knowledge always carries ethical implications. It's meant to change the way you live and bring your life into balance with God's standard. And that in turn pleases the Lord. And that's our aim, right? Those of us who've been saved by his grace, we have now as our ambition to be pleasing to him. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 9. That's our goal. That that should set the course of our lives. We, We want to walk in a worthy manner because we want to now please him. Can we get more specific with that, though? Like, what does that look like? What does such a worthy walk look like? And Paul helps us out with a little explanation. And so thirdly now, the depiction. He's going to go on to depict what a worthy walk looks like. In the middle of verse 10 through the end of verse 12, he follows up what he said so far with four participles. Participles are are verbs that function like adjectives. Anyway. He's using these four participles to explain what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So these are like four depictions of a worthy walk. And let's cover these now. First is bearing fruit in every good work. You see that in the middle of verse 10? It's the first depiction of a worthy walk. Bearing fruit in every good work. God wants fruit. He's the farmer. He planted a field because he wants fruit. And when God sees fruit in the life of a believer, he's pleased. And such a harvest marks your maturity. 
You should know we are not saved by good works. That's crystal clear. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. And though we are not saved by works, we certainly are saved for works. I hope you understand that as well. That once saved by grace, the Lord now expects us to to get to work and to bear fruit. We are to use our new natures to heed his will and, and live rightly. And God wants a continual harvest. Salvation is really just the beginning of the fruit of the gospel. And thereafter, God expects a repeated harvest of good works. This, this verb bearing fruit is in the present tense. It's to be continual and ongoing. It's like Jesus put it in John 15 too, that you know, when God sees fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. He's not satisfied with just initial fruit or a little fruit. He wants more. He wants to reap as much godliness from your life as possible for that pleases him. Also, John 15, 8, where Jesus said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. On this upward spiral then, you can't rest on yesterday's harvest. You must continually progress in godly living. Maybe you went through a season of fruitfulness in your Christian life. You know, your evangelism was on fire. You're sharing the gospel with people left and right. You went on mission trips. But that was 20 years ago. Now now you you don't do much. You don't share much. You haven't shared your faith in, in quite a while. You still feel good about that harvest 20 years ago though, but... But listen, that's, that's not enough. And we're not talking about contributing to your salvation. Understand that. But look, the Lord wants a continual harvest. And this upward spiral should result in more and more fruitfulness in your life. Not, not less and less. And if you find you, your fruitfulness in good works has been decreasing, maybe you're on the wrong spiral. You know, we're never going to reach the top in this life, but... God constantly wants to see new fields of our life cultivated and and brought in line with his will. And so this is the first depiction of a a worthy walk. It's continually bearing fruit. Secondly, increasing in the knowledge of God. The second parsable here is increasing or growing. This is the, the second depiction of a worthy walk. Increasing in the knowledge of God. It's not like you are to learn a little bit about God and go off of that knowledge for the rest of your Christian life. That's like thinking you have enough energy to run 100 miles because you had a big breakfast. No, you're going to need to refuel. And so it is with the knowledge of God. For it not only fills our minds, but it's meant to fuel our spiritual lives. And furthermore, though, I hope you can see right here this upward spiral come into focus. And you see this this feedback loop Paul has formed. You know, back to verse 9. His primary prayer is what? That they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God and his will. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will is going to lead them to walk in a worthy manner. Walking in a worthy manner includes, among other things, further increasing in the knowledge of God. Right here in this verse. And so this upward spiral just keeps going. Our understanding of God's word and will 
is meant to fuel our living, and that in turn should come back and deepen our understanding of God's word and will. And that just keeps going and going. That loop, or, or better yet, spiral, is meant to keep going all our lives, just drawing us closer to God in, in intimacy and holiness. So I'll say again, this concept of knowing God and knowing his will is a big deal. It needs to be further explored. But first, let's just finish up with these final two depictions of a worthy walk. There's two more. Number three, being strengthened with power. In verse 11, being strengthened with power, he says. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. As you are filled with the knowledge of God's will, you will walk rightly. And that's going to include you being strengthened with power. This one's in the passive, so it's more of an outcome. But for our worthy walk, we don't have and we don't need self-generated power. Rather, we receive divinely granted power. This is in the present, indicating God continually supplies us all the power we need for this walk. God does not give us just an initial burst of spiritual energy and just let us go. It's like you, you shove a boat off from the pier and think that's all it takes for it to cross the ocean. No, but rather God continually delivers us power by his spirit to walk worthily and that God gives what he demands. He demands holiness and righteousness and discipleship, but he supplies all, all the power for that, according to the might of his glory. And the same glory and power that delivered Israel from Egypt is now at work within us by his spirit to just fuel this walk. You may lack your own willpower to grow in godliness, but you're never going to lack God's power to grow in godliness. You know, the apostle Peter said the same thing. Listen to Second Peter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says to them, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. Seems like Peter has grasped the same relationship between knowing God and his divine power. That God's power always accompanies his word and will. But keep in mind, God's power has a purpose. He gives it not for our ends, but his own. And here he has a goal in richly supplying us here in verse 10. And as Paul puts it, it's for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. These terms together speak of our endurance. Endurance with difficult circumstances and endurance with difficult people. And when we feel like we're the victim of circumstance or we encounter difficult people, it, it's the secure knowledge of God's will that enables us to endure, endure instead of uh, despair. We can endure with hope and courage, trusting God's perfect plan, his sovereign work, and his good purposes. And that is an important outcome of being filled with the knowledge of his will indeed. Well, finally now, the fourth depiction of a worthy walk. He says, giving thanks with joy. 
He finishes up his thought at the end of verse 11. It's, it's a long thought. I'm trying to break it down. The end of verse 11, though, he says, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The fourth depiction of a worthy walk is giving thanks with joy. And thanksgiving is a natural consequence of receiving salvation by grace for it recognizes that what we have was not earned or deserved. That forgiveness and eternal life came to us as free gifts. And that beckons thanksgiving. And it should be with joy. God is not pleased by begrudging expressions of thanksgiving. And that's like a kid you have to constantly remind to say thank you as he's opening up presents on his birthday. And God wants our hearts to just overflow, uh, overflow rather with the joy of our salvation and that we just, we naturally give thanks. This gratitude should be directed to the father because he's the one who has, he says, qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And this looks back to not a repeated event, but a one-time event. This qualification is a settled reality. And it speaks of a time when God justified us by our faith in Christ. He made us right with him. He adopted us as sons and daughters. And then he gave us a place in his kingdom of light. And Paul's going to go on in the next verse to, to contrast this. Just by way of preview, you can look at verse 13. He says right after, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And thank God, we don't need, though, to to strive to enter his kingdom. We don't have to earn our place, because if we did, no one's getting in. But we're granted a place by his grace through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And as you're reminded of that knowledge, you've been given a place in the kingdom. You've got a seat at the table just by grace. Well, that should well within you thanksgiving with joy. So you put all this together and you have a little upward spiral. As you're totally filled with the knowledge of God's will, that should lead you to walk in a manner worthy of God. That in turn should translate into bearing fruit and good works, further growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with power and giving thanks with joy. And as all of these increase, well, your knowledge of God's will will deepen and the upward spiral of sanctification continues. So like I said, I think this is an important passage for what it captures. And for one, just just what a great model of prayer, right? I mean, first, are you praying for other believers? Do you regularly pray and even intercede for you know, the other people in this room. And second, are your prayers reserved for emergencies only? Like your prayer life is behind a pane of glass that says, you know, break open only in case of emergency. It's not wrong to pray for others in a time of crisis, but, but just think preventative maintenance. Like that's what Paul is doing here. Before the crisis strikes, let's just be praying for one another proactively that that they would just grow, that, that one another would be
be filled with the knowledge of his will, that they would walk in a worthy manner, that they would avoid a lot of hardships in life, which, which might be self-inflicted from immaturity. We should commit to just regularly pray on behalf of one another. And, and if, you just, if you just literally pray what Paul prays here for one another, you would be doing well. There's a lot to learn just from Paul's prayer example. But regarding the content of what he prays, it's just very rich and instructive. And as I said earlier, I think we need to reflect on this more. It's just such a simple but helpful snapshot of spiritual growth. And so let's, let's work this text backward again. Examine your own Christian life. And is this depiction of a worthy walk missing from your life? Are you failing to bear fruit in every good work? Are you not living out your faith in obedience? Also, is your knowledge of God shallow? Do thoughts of God rarely come to your mind, let alone the the active pursuit of God? And then do you lack patience? When trials come, do you respond with despair and depression? Or when you encounter difficult people, do you just kind of lose your temper and you're characterized by impatience? And finally, are you a complainer? Instead of just giving thanks all the time for all that you have, do you focus on just the things you don't have? And so you complain. And that obviously would not be the picture of a worthy walk or a life that pleases the Lord. Instead, that's, that's really the picture of a Christian who is almost certainly drifting, who is typically without a doubt, you know, pulling away from the Lord from the things of the Lord, but that's not good. And such a Christian has nothing coming on that path, but further hardship, most of which will be brought on oneself and a little discipline of the Lord will probably be sprinkled in there. But let's keep working this backward. So you have a person who's not bearing fruit. They're not growing. They're not being empowered. Clearly that means that they're not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. But why not? Why aren't they growing? Well, where's the disconnect? Well, I'm going to take a wager and say that they're not being filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and understanding. Again, if this is you, your problem starts with your mind. Your mind is being filled, but just not with his word and will. It's likely being filled with other things like the things of the world. Some are preoccupied with the passing pleasures of the world. Others are just maybe tired after a season of striving. But either way, they're they're not setting their mind on things above. They're not, Colossians 3.16, letting the word of Christ richly dwell within them. They're not being filled with the knowledge of his will. And so they've missed the first step on this upward spiral. And likely that means they're probably going the other direction. But that is not a good place to be, as God said of Israel in Hosea 4, 6, and my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, I don't say all this to discourage you, but to encourage you, because there is good news here. And like I said before, that this course can be reversed today, right now. That you can resolve to change and then just do so. You can get back on the upward spiral. And it all starts with that first 
step. The most critical step in change is always the first step. And so you really need to see here that the prominence, the knowledge of God and his will plays in spiritual growth. Let's talk further now about what, what this knowledge is and how you get it. You know, when Paul mentions the knowledge of God's will here, he's not talking about the hidden will of God pertaining to your individual life. You know, like people wonder, whom should I marry? Should we have more kids? Is it time to retire? Like we want to know God's specific will for our lives. But that's not been revealed. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. Rather, he's talking about the revelation of God's plans and purposes for this world. We're talking the big questions. Why did God make the world? Why did he make you? What is the meaning of life? The revelation of God's will includes these answers. He's given us foundational truths and they're meant to anchor our lives. Such truths include the depths of God's glory. That's his purpose for all things. He made this whole world for himself and his glory, not for you. This world does not revolve around you or me, but but God. That's already a huge perspective shift for a lot of people. We were made in God's image. We were made to reflect his glory, but we don't do that anymore. For his will also reveals that we're fallen. We're sinners by nature. We've rebelled against him and his glory. And so the knowledge of God's will also includes the reality of a judgment for our sin. And we've been separated from our creator over our rebellion. And and so we face now the reality of his wrath. But thankfully, God's will has been further revealed in redemption. That the mystery of his will has been revealed in Christ for redemption. And that reconciliation with our creator is possible, but not by effort. There's nothing you can do. There's no amount of works or merit you can bring. Rather, salvation per God's will is revealed as purely by his mercy and his grace. And that grace is realized in Christ Jesus. Just like Paul said over in Ephesians 1, 7 through 9, you can just listen. It says, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, He, Jesus, made known to us the mystery of his will. You know, this revelation of God's will includes his grand plan to save sinners through faith in Christ, which is all to his glory. You know, one commentator, John Kitchen, writes, quote, Paul's intent here is that the Colossians would be filled with the deep, full, rich understanding of the grace of God that is theirs in Christ. A grace that stretches from eternity past when God set his will and predestined them to adoption as sons all the way through the present and into the future where they will spend eternity discovering the wonders of their inheritance in Christ as sons of God, end quote. You know, this knowledge of God's will is a vast subject Again, we're talking about all the foundational truths of God's plans and purposes for this world and for you. And all of these come into focus in Christ Jesus. And by way of preview, that's what Colossians is about. He's going to say in chapter 2, verse 3, that 
in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so part of being filled with the knowledge of God's will is just this understanding of how all of God's creative and redemptive purposes find their fulfillment in Christ. We need to know Christ and then we will know God's will. You can spend a lifetime learning that. But so what? So what? Well, hopefully you've learned so far that ignorance is not bliss when it comes to the Christian life. That that doesn't work. Rather, God uses the deep truths of his word and will to fill our minds, control us, and direct us according to his will. That knowledge of his will with wisdom and understanding, it gives you a lens to see the world rightly. Knowledge of God's will helps you interpret trials and triumphs, blessings and burdens from a divine perspective. And that should lead you to a right response, response that pleases him. I mean, how many Christians have had their faith demolished because of some great suffering, death of a loved one, a great sickness? But the one who is filled with the knowledge of his will knows better. They know that, look, despite whatever trial, God's still on the throne. He's still in control. He's still good. He promises to work all things out for good in the end for those who love him. Nothing can separate us from his love in Christ. Nothing can steal our hope or inheritance or our future resurrection. You see, these truths anchor us in hope and perseverance, not despair. And so Christians who are controlled by such knowledge, they're going to walk worthily and they will respond to anything in life in a manner that pleases him. It's not enough to say that you just love Jesus, yet you persist in this perpetual ignorance of his will. I hope you love Jesus, but that love should lead you to seek him. And he's calling you to deeper waters. I mean, how well do you know God? Like the ocean, you could never know him fully, but still, how deep have you ventured out? You've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years. But have you barely ventured beyond the shallows in your pursuit of him? Think about his being, his character, his works, his word, his will, his attributes. I hope and pray that, that like, like Paul says, you would take just knowing God more seriously and, and take conviction and translate it into change that you pursue the Lord and the knowledge of him. God is pleased when his people draw nearer to him. And maybe for some of you, it's just time to grow up in the faith. It's time to move beyond the rudimentary fundamentals and just advance in your knowledge of God, his word, his will. It's just like the author of Hebrews says to his audience. He tells them, hey, by now, some of you ought to be teachers, yet you still need someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. That you, you still need milk. You can't handle solid food. It shouldn't be that way. Are you ready to grow? Do you want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Do you want to please God in all respects? Do you want to continually bear fruit? Do you want to further increase in the knowledge of God? Do you want to be empowered? Do you want to be thankful? Well, it all starts with this first step. And you need to get on this upward spiral And so just commit to be filled with the knowledge of God and pray that the spirit would lead you with wisdom and understanding 
into getting it right. And then seek it. It's really not complicated because God's will is all found in one place. The Bible. His word. And so what you need to do is just read it. Study it. Search it. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. And you will find his will. Listen to Proverbs 2, 2 through 6. Where he says, Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, if you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discover the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And God's will is like a treasure that's already been given to you. You just need to go get it. It's like you've got a silver mine in your backyard and yet you're broke. Well, just like go spend some time in the mine and you will find riches. And likewise, you hold the treasure of God's revealed will in your hands. You have it. And so if you want spiritual riches, go spend some time there. Do you want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Seek him. Seek his word. Seek the Savior in his word. And you will know that that God will ensure that you will grow into the fullness of Christ, as we will learn more about in Colossians. For now, let's pray. Our good Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its, its powerful and convicting message. It convicts us all. All of us are are carried away by the world and the distractions of the world. No, none of us here can truly say we, we seek you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We, we all fall short. You're sinners. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. But I pray, Lord, you use your word to convict us and to change us. This morning, we've been filled with a little bit of the knowledge of your will. And I pray that would translate into a worthy walk and a real change, that we would seek you from the heart. Give us just a a picture of your glory and your worth. That you appear to us worth more than anything else in our lives. And that we give you due time. That that our own hearts might be filled. That our walks might be transformed. And that we would just keep growing on this upward spiral. That that pleases you. You desire, like like a parent with a child. You desire for your children just to, to come near. To come close. To know you. And may that be us. May we reflect that this morning. Be with us. Sanctify us. And keep working in us uh, the power of the gospel to save and to sanctify all through Christ our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.